Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing upon his word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've granted us to one more time come and hear the matters of Christ, the matters of the gospel, the matters of our salvation, the matters of our eternal life and justification. We pray, Lord, for this hour that you bless us with ears to hear and give me the words to speak that which is true and faithful. We honor you and praise you in all things. We ask for a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning and God's blessing on all who name Christ. We are going to be back in Romans. We're going to be back in Romans and we're going to be in Romans 1. Verse 1 to 7, but emphasis is going to be verse 1 to 4, as if we have not done them. <laughs> Romans 1, and I use the New King James Version most of the time for our translation. That's what we use mostly. This is what Apostle Paul recorded by the Holy Spirit. Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are back to the book of Romans to continue with the teaching of God's gospel. And you see that we are not going to advance beyond the last four verses that we did last Sunday because I thought I still had gospel nuggets to glean from the same verses before we could proceed any further. And it is not like we could ever exhaust the gospel teaching because God's gospel is the subject matter of the whole Bible. And to teach the Bible is to teach God's gospel. That is the proper way to use the Bible. And we established that the book of Romans was written by Apostle Paul using the hand of a scribe by the name of Tetius. I believe that would be the pronunciation and I am willing to be corrected if someone has a better way to pronounce it. But this was an acceptable way of doing things, of writing letters using the hand of another. And the letter was written to the church at Rome as the immediate audience with the intention of establishing 
the gospel fundamentals to them that they would come to the unity of the faith of the gospel that they had had and believed. But we must understand that though Paul wrote with an immediate audience using their particular context, it is God who wrote the epistle to the whole community of believers of all time, starting from the time that the epistle was written. Even to us this very day, because the foundation of what we believe about the gospel was given to Apostle Paul to expound. So this was not just written to the church at Rome, but to the church at large. And that's why we are preaching from it. So God ordained and brought about all the circumstances that necessitated the writing so that he would communicate to us what the gospel really is. So do not lose sight of all that important point. It is very, very important that God is behind all the little details that are happening in this community of believers so that he would use the circumstances to flesh out what the gospel is. What are the real issues for us to understand? And this is true with every story in the Bible. God is he who was behind everything that happened. After all, it is his story. It is his script. God is he who has written everything that is in the Bible because according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So essentially, it is profitable for gospel preaching. Okay, so we see that if it is captivity that happened in the Bible or anywhere outside of the Bible, <laughs> God is behind it. If it was the captivity of Israel in Egypt, in Babylon, it is God who caused it. And if it was redemption from that captivity, it is he who caused it. Even now, he is still causing people to go into captivity, and for those who are redeemed, it is he who is behind it. And so, we see that David took Bathsheba because that is what God wanted to be done in the script of Christ. The story of David and Bathsheba is not the story of David and Bathsheba, it is not the story of do not take someone's wife and do not kill their husband because if you moralize these stories, we always come up with foolishness. If David does not take Bathsheba and kill Uriah, then we do not have Psalm 32 and we do not have part of Romans chapter 4 of the blessed man to whom the Lord does not impute sin, 
which is the basis and foundation of your hope, the non-imputation of your sin. And God had to preach that through the story of David and Bathsheba. That's exactly what God meant by the story. Okay? And if Miss Potiphar does not grab Joseph's garment, then we do not have the wonderful news of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Yeah? To us who are the adulterers and adulteresses, God is preaching the matter of imputation of righteousness by the story of this Potiphar. So we can moralize those stories. But the church at Rome was not founded by some other apostle or any other apostle. We know this from Luke in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 10, that there were visitors from Rome. There were all kinds of people there, but among them were visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, and that means Gentile converts to Judaism. They were there among the 3,000 who were at Pentecost. These had the gospel, and they believed, and they would have brought the faith to Rome and established the gathering there of Christians in the synagogues. And in Romans 15, to which we shall go, we'll glean some of the reasons why Paul penned this episode to the Romans. And as we glean through his writing, we'll have an understanding of who established the church at Rome, if anything, and why Paul would write such a doctrinal treatise to this church at Rome. Okay, so we'll go to Romans 15, and it's going to form the basis of much of our introduction, Romans 15, from verse 14 and following all the way to 29. Romans 15, 14 to 29. We have a wonderful message, a long message, and I have to be patient. Okay, lots of nuggets to glean. There's a lot of stuff. Hear this. Romans 15, 14 and following. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you. So this is almost the conclusion of the letter. And Paul says, the things that he has discussed to this point are the gospel points that he wrote by way of reminder because they are fundamentals of God's gospel and we could always use reminders ourselves because we are forgetful hearers. Yes, there's a lot of boldness in this epistle that we shall see. 
which boldness culminates in Romans chapter 9 teaching. There's a lot of bold teaching there. Okay, so Paul is not playing games. But he continued and said, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is writing to them because of the grace given him by God to say this was not a ministry of his own doing or choosing. God is the source, the cause, and authority, and the message. But to establish his authority, that is, the authority of Paul as an apostle to them, and minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, of which they were predominantly Gentiles in Rome, but not all Gentiles. They elect among them who have been sanctified, set apart by God as recipients of God's grace, by the Holy Spirit and not by law. You have to pay attention to these things. Paul said the Gentiles have been sanctified, they've been set apart by the Holy Spirit. And he's making a distinction between the law and the gospel. The law does not sanctify by the Holy Spirit. The law sanctifies by the law. The redeemed are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Also, Paul is a minister not of law, but of Christ. And that means he is a minister of grace. I am a minister of Christ Jesus to minister the gospel of God's grace to all who are appointed to it. I am a minister of the new covenant. I am not a law preacher. I am not a law preacher, but a grace preacher. The law can help you. If I stand up here and I'm preaching law for two hours, you're going to come out feeling condemned 100% of the time. I am not a law preacher. I am a gospel preacher. Let's continue with Paul. Verse 17, still in Romans 15. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. To make the Gentiles obedient to what? What do Gentiles obey? Obedient to the faith. Obedient of faith. That is our obedience to God. In mighty signs, verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named 
lest I should build on another man's foundation. So Paul says he would not have been writing to a church that was not founded by other apostles because to him that would have been building on another man's foundation. And that to say the church at Rome was not founded by Peter because Peter was assigned to the circumcision, that is to the Jews, his ministry was to the Jews and that ministry would not have taken him to establish the church at Rome. If anything, that would have been something that Paul did. Okay? Verse 21 and following, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So Paul is writing this letter to ready or prepare the Roman believers to receive him in Christ, fellowship with him in the gospel, and then prepare him by way of support for his missionary journey into Spain. So Paul intends to use the Roman church as his launch pad into Spain. And so he has to introduce himself. But in the meantime, this is what is happening with me, Paul says, verse 25. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Before I come to Rome, I have to go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. But how are you to minister to the saints in Jerusalem Verse 26, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia who were Gentile believers to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So Paul is eager to send this gift, this contribution to the poor believers in Jerusalem. And this contribution is coming from Gentiles. Why is this so important to Paul? This is so that he may cement their bonds in the gospel. To say the gospel that Paul was preaching was not an antinomian gospel as the Jews were accusing him of. Because the Jerusalem crowd were mostly the law crowd. This is the club that belongs to James. And the accusation coming to Paul or going to Paul is that he is antinomian. And by him bringing this contribution to the poor saints, he is saying, see the fruit of the gospel of Christ 
Even the Gentiles are now supporting the poor of the Jews who are in Christ. Okay? The gospel was producing fruit among the Gentiles to the extent that they were making collections to help among those who were poor in Jerusalem. Verse 27. It pleased them indeed and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So Paul says the Gentile believers were indebted to the Jewish believers in that salvation came from Christ who was a Jew. And also the early preachers, the apostles, were all Jewish. And so a financial contribution or any support to them would not be out of line and would not be asking too much of them. And so you see that Paul speaks of the material and the spiritual things. And when he was arguing for his right to be supported in the gospel ministry, this is what he said to the Corinthian church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 12, Paul says, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul's point was that there are spiritual and material things to be shared in the gospel context in the body of Christ. There is an exchange that is happening. The spiritual things are the important things because they respect your salvation. They respect imperishable things from Christ. And so those who benefit from the spiritual things ought to materially support those who feed them with the imperishable spiritual things. See, the basis that Paul uses for support of ministry, he does not go to tithing. He does not go to law. He bases support on the matter of the gospel and your blessing in Christ to say this is who you are in Christ. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so to that end, your responsibility is to support those who feed you with those things of Christ materially. Okay, And Paul said to them, for him he had not used that right, he did not demand it from them, lest someone would have thought he was in it. He was in this gospel ministry for gain, and that thinking would have hindered the preaching of the gospel of Christ if he was always coming and asking for money. Oh, we need support. If we don't support this ministry, we're going to shut our doors. We need money for this. We need money for that. 
that is a hindrance to the gospel. Okay? So Paul did not avail himself to that. Romans 15, 28 and 29. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. I shall go by way of Rome to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So when he comes to the Roman believers, he would come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ, which he has faithfully expounded to them in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 15. Of course, it's going to end in chapter 16. So the fullness of the gospel that he brings are the things that he has expounded prior. So now they know who they're dealing with and the kind of conversation that Paul is going to bring to them. Okay? So that's some background to what is happening between Paul and the church at Rome. And of course, we're going to expound some more ideas of what Paul really meant to expound as we go through the book of Romans. And that will take us to Romans 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a born servant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, separated the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul introduced and identified himself as a born servant of Jesus Christ, not a slave of Moses, not a slave of the law, not of the devil, not of sin, but of Christ. He has one master, Christ Jesus. He had surrendered all his rights to Christ, and in this he had not willingly put himself. No one willingly surrenders in this business. This was something that had been imposed on him. He wasn't looking for it. Just as there's none who just decides to come to Christ. And we know that Paul was not looking for Christ because before his conversion, he had been persecuting the people of Christ. So he wasn't looking for salvation. And that you say salvation is imposed on a person. And I say that without apology. Salvation is imposed by God. But people who do not understand or know the use of words and language will not agree. They don't like the language of imposition. Imposed or imposed does not necessarily mean at gunpoint 
It means salvation is a blessing that none ever seeks or sought because naturally they know nothing about it until it is already bestowed. You and I did not know about Christ until Christ showed up by his spirit. God's power is irresistible. And he will make you willing in the day of his power. If you belong to Christ, he will make you willing. And if it means he will drag you through the mud or throw you off your horseback, <laughs> horseback of false religion and self-righteousness, like what happened to Paul, that is what he's going to do. Don't believe these people who say, oh, God does not. He's a gentleman. No, God is not a gentleman. God does not wear a tuxedo. Okay? God is God. Yes, he is gentle and lowly in heart, but he is still not a gentleman. Christ is a man of war. Read the book of Revelation. So if one or anyone should be found in Christ, it is only because God chose them apart from their consent or will. He did not consult them to see if it was a good thing to be saved. Because if salvation was left to you as a registered voter to decide or to do You'd always vote against your own best interests. Always. Guaranteed 100%. So salvation is 100% imposed on all the elect because even the election itself is or was by God's sovereign will. You were not even a registered voter when election happened. You were not eligible to vote. So God does not consult anyone about anything, just about nothing. God does not consult his creation about anything. He does not consult anyone. Because the book of Ephesians tells us that he works all things, all things according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't consult angels even. Yeah? So when God imposes his will... To save a sinner, that is what is called grace. He imposes his will and says, oh yeah, Sean, you belong to me. And there's nothing that you can do about it. Okay? So you're coming. So Paul was called of God and commissioned with a gospel message to the Gentiles. To be called of God means to receive Summons of salvation. Summons of arrest. That you are being arrested on account of Christ. Your crime is that you belong to Jesus. That's the summons. You belong to Christ. And you are being arrested on his account. And so the Holy Spirit comes and arrests you for the sake of Christ and will give you faith and repentance to the same Christ. 
That's the matter of faith and repentance. But in his calling, Paul was given work to do. He was separated to the gospel of God. Paul was a man of very high sovereignty, as should all who claim to know God. If your sovereignty is weak, you do not know the God of the Bible. If your sovereignty is weak, you still do not know the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign. I don't care what you want to put there to try and diminish it. And a lot of people try to dilute the sovereignty of God by saying, but if you say that, you are making God the author of evil, the author of sin. It's foolish talk. Don't entertain that foolishness. It's foolishness. God is sovereign. Yeah? So, according to Paul, election was very basic to his understanding of God and his dealings with men and in his gospel. Paul ascribed all things to God as the cause of all things. And God ascribes all things to himself as the cause of all things. God is not ashamed of his sovereignty. Paul says, and of him, and that is Romans eleven thirty-six. And of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that is without apology. So this former Pharisee, which meant separate or segregated, had now been separated to God's gospel. Initially, he was separated from the things of this world in the religion of do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, do not watch, do not smell, do not get vaccinated religion. I'm serious. Is still being preached as an identifying marker of salvation. Seemingly splendid isolation, thinking that this would commend him to God. A lot of people think this way because they think this is what commends them to God. But Paul says, now this calling had separated him. This gospel calling had separated him in the knowledge of God's gospel. And yet in this separation, he was free to mingle with all kinds of sinners. Even sinners among the pagan society of Rome, as was contrary to his former religion. Because Judaism was calling for the separation of God's people from among the surrounding nations. God did not want them to adopt and mingle with the surrounding nations. But the gospel of Christ says, now Paul, go to Spain, go to Rome, 
and mingle with the pagans because from among the pagans, I also have some of my elect people. Yeah? So the gospel of God is founded in separation, not the Pharisees' way or understanding of separation, but separation founded on election, separation founded on the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And let me say this. There's no faithful reader of the Bible and believer of the gospel who denies that election is part of the gospel message because there's no grace apart from election. There's no grace apart from election. If you remove election, you are removing the offense. I know what you're doing. Election is part of the offense. Hence Romans 9. So grace is not an an undefined grace. Grace is defined. Grace is not waiting for people to validate or make it work by the exercise of their choice. Grace does not wait for people to make up their minds. It is grace that is boundaries. The grace of God has boundaries, which means it is particular to those for which it was given. The grace of God is purposeful and it is effectual. The boundaries of grace were set by God's sovereign election from before the foundation of the world. That's where grace began to work. Grace is not a new thing. God's gospel is a message from eternity and was given for the sake of the elect chosen in eternity and is effectual in doing what it was given to do, which is their total salvation. And if something is effectual, it means it does exactly what it was given to do. Degreaser, for those who do their dishes with hands, degreaser is effectual towards removing grease. It means it does that very well. If you use degreaser to remove the grime, the dirty and stuff, your plates are going to be squeaky clean. Degreaser does that well because it is effectual in that regard. So salvation was determined in the counsel of God's mind and all the parameters, all the boundaries were set there without any contribution from anyone. What God did from eternity is what is going to come to pass. There's nothing that's going to happen now that God has not already determined to happen. Only that which he purposed to do will be done in your salvation and in your life. Nothing is happening by accident. It is an unfolding of God's purpose in Christ. Okay? Now, God's message is 
a very specific message. God's gospel is a very specific message as I hinted before or said in the previous message. This message of God, he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures and that's Romans 1-2. He promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That authenticates the prophets as having been inspired of God. Yeah? So this message was promised before, which is in keeping with a God who knows the end from the beginning. He promised it before that he would do it. And thus, this message is not a new thing. It is a reliable message because it has a lot of written record to bear witness to it. He first gave it to his prophets in the Holy Scriptures in the written record. But he had even promised that before to Christ. He promised this message before the foundation of the world because the names of his people were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So he promised Christ a bride, a church, a people to redeem. And Christ came and redeemed them. And that authenticates, as I said, both the prophets and the Holy Scriptures as having been inspired by God. The Scriptures have been inspired of God. Inspiration, my brothers and sisters, does not mean that the writers themselves necessarily understood everything that they were given to write. No, they were closed off to the understanding of them, but they were still inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words down. Without the Holy Spirit, they could not have understood everything. Even Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot understand them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will reveal, he will take all things of mine and give them unto you. Also, the inspiration was only of the word that was given them, not their lives. And that is say, the prophets are not our examples to follow. I know that is, it is very popular with a lot of preachers. Yeah? Christ is our example. If we have to follow somebody, it is Christ. And we are being conformed to the image of Christ and not of the prophets. I hear preachers say, so-and-so is our Elijah of the day, or may God raise another Moses. No, we don't need another Elijah. We don't need another Moses. God already overshadowed Elijah and Moses with the clouds. And Christ alone remains Okay? We have Christ and Christ alone is enough. 
And now, let's work the promise. Because that is the subject of our message. Let us hear again of whom this promise was about. Verse 3 of Romans 1. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the prophets recorded testimony concerning the son. And that son is Christ Jesus. And that Christ Jesus is our Lord. That is the whole matter of salvation. It concerns the person called Jesus, who is Lord, and that is Yahweh. Yahweh is salvation. That is the name of Jesus. Jesus means God saves. This Jesus is Yahweh, and he reveals himself or has revealed himself in the matter of salvation. And if salvation concerns Christ, it means it concerns his person and his work. It doesn't concern your person and your work. It doesn't concern the devil. Christ is the reason. Christ is the cause and the end of the whole matter of who God is and the end and reason of all of creation. God's gospel concerns the Son in all the matter of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And Christ is the glory of God. And all things were made and given to the Son by the Father. Because the Father loved the Son, all power and authority was given to the Son, all judgment given to the Son. And so God's gospel concerns the Son in that He is the cause. He is the cause and bringer of that gospel. The son was made surety and substitute for all whom God determined to bestow his eternal blessing upon. Christ was made surety to stand in the place of all those that were given him by the father to do everything that God required of them, for them to stand as holy and righteous and without blame before God in all of eternity. That is the work of the Son. That is what his resume says. And none of that is found on your own birth certificate. There's nothing that is written on your birth certificate or on your resume that says you are responsible to cause your own standing before God. It's not there. That is only found in the job description of Christ Jesus. 
So the son is the cause by reason of merit. Because only the son has ability to merit such eternal blessings on behalf of his people. And by reason of binding himself with an oath to bring all these things about, the son is the cause by reason of his faithfulness and obedience by reason of his dignity and his blessing, by reason of his honor and majesty. Christ the Son, the cause of your salvation by reason of his suffering and shedding of blood. Only the shedding of the blood of the Son brings salvation. Your blood, even if you were to shed an ocean full of blood, it would not save a raccoon. It would not save a thing. Okay? And the sun is reason and cause because of reputation and glory. The sun has an excellent reputation by reason of his holiness and righteousness. God trusts the Son to do what he was given to do. And you and I have a very poor reputation when it comes to faithfulness. (laughs) We have a very bad reputation because of sin, because of failure and misery. That attends to our condition as those who are in Adam. And so if any part of salvation was given or entrusted to you and me to do, it would miserably fail and we would not care because we have no reputation to protect. Sinners have no reputation to defend, but not the Son The son cannot fail. Jesus cannot afford to fail on account of his glory. And if it means death in the shame of the cross, then that is what must happen. And that's what he did. Who, according to the book of Hebrews, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ had and has dignity and glory to defend. Ultimately, This matter concerns the Son because it is about glory. It is about God's glory. And glory is about God boasting about himself and saying, look at me. There's none like me 
to whom will you liken me is the question. There's none to whom we can liken God. And you and I are supposed to say, wow, yes, Lord, there's none like you. That is the whole matter of salvation. That you and I will come and be wowed when we behold of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, when people come and talk about their free will in salvation, I pity them because they have no clue of what they are saying. They still do not know the matter of which God is declaring to us in his gospel. Because anything that takes away from the glory of Christ in salvation is forbidden. It is forbidden. It is false teaching. Anything that exalts the human, that exalts the flesh, is an affront to the glory of the Son. Okay? God will not take it. But now to the humility of the Son. This Son is a descendant or seed of David according to the flesh, according to the lineage of his flesh. And yet he was conceived of the Holy Spirit to say he is now the new head of humanity outside of Adam. This son has ended and made union with his creation by identifying with them whom he came to redeem so that they too would be joined to him. The two shall become one in that union and identity of Christ with his own creation. And there are many reasons given for that union in the flesh. Let's go to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verse 8 to 11. The Holy Spirit says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's speaking of Christ. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. It doesn't look like everything is under the feet of Christ. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Christ was made a little lower than the angels, which means before the incarnation, he was above the angels. And if you are above the angels, it means you are God, because there is no other nature that is above the angels. So Christ was made a little lower than the angels by the adding of human flesh. And why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might test death for everyone. Christ took on human flesh that he may die on the cross. Christ came to die so that he might test death for everyone for whom he was given to die 
Christ did not die for every human being who ever lived or who ever lived on planet Earth. It's only for those for whom he was given to die. So he died in their place. A death that they will not have to die anymore. We have already died to death and are alive to God in Christ. That is why the union and identification with Christ becomes very, very important because God sees us in the movement of Jesus. God sees us on the cross with Jesus because we are in union with him. God sees us as having died with him and buried with him in his grave. And God sees us resurrected with him and also he sees us seated. Okay? And that was necessary for Christ to come and add human flesh. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ, as the captain of our salvation, he is leading the ship of our salvation. Because the captain is the one who steers the ship to its destination, whilst those who are in, on board are busy eating shrimp and kicking it. <laughs> That's what happens, right? On the cruise, you are not responsible for the steering. It's the captain's business. You just be busy eating your shrimp and kicking it and you make it your destination. So Christ is the captain of our salvation and he could not suffer apart from being clothed in human flesh. God is spirit and so he needed to add human flesh to himself so that he would endure the pain of the flesh, the weakness of the flesh and that without sin. And so that Christ could be put on the cross. You could not nail the Spirit of God on some piece of wood. You need a body to nail on a piece of wood. And that explains the incarnation reason. So the Christ added human nature for suffering by way of the cross. Yeah? And that is the means to bring many sons to glory. And sons there is speaking to both male and female. Sonship is a legal statement there to say in Christ, those who are in him have the legal rights of inheritance. Okay? Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are the sanctified or of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the incarnation of Christ was for the unity and identification of Christ and his brethren so that they can relate to one another in the things that respect weakness on one hand 
and also salvation. Okay, let's remain in Hebrews. Let's go to verse 14 to 18, still in Hebrews 2. Verse 14, Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So taking up human flesh enabled Christ to suffer the weakness and curse of humanity that was on his brethren, the weakness of death. But for him, it was so that he would destroy death. Christ overcame death by fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, his death and resurrection. So you find that in Romans 8, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in his flesh. Okay? Verse 15. And he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the redeemed should not be afraid of death. The resurrection of Christ evidences our victory over death. Death has no more power over you as it does not have any more power over Christ. Christ already defanged it. Okay? Verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. If Christ had been given for the salvation of the fallen angels, then he would not taken up our human nature. Because angels have their own peculiar nature. And Christ gives help by the very nature of adding human nature to himself and then saving us by that. And this is something very important because you and I did not determine to become human beings. We could have been created as angels. We could have been created as the fallen angels. And as the fallen angels, the fallen angels have no gospel. They have no good news. Because Christ did not redeem them. This is a wonderful thing. To be born a human being is a wonderful thing because you have hope. (laughs) Fallen angels have no hope whatsoever. Okay? Verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. So the sinless humanity of Christ was really genuine. He had to be made like his brethren, but without sin. So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people by his death. He made propitiation. When he died, he made complete satisfaction 
for the sins of the people. When Christ died, he made complete satisfaction for the sins of his people who believe the gospel. And someone is going to come and say, Oh, brother, or oh, pastor, I don't feel saved. Do you really think I am saved because I don't feel it? What did the text just tell us? Did the text say you're supposed to feel anything? I mean, like, you, you, you make me tired answering these things. Does the text say you're supposed to feel something to be saved? The text says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what he did. That's what you believe. End of story. It's not about your feeling. It's about what he did. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He comes to the aid. But please understand the gospel. The gospel concerns the son as he made propitiation for the sins of the people. And his resurrection is testimony that God accepted what Christ made for payment. That sin debt is paid for. That is the essence of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is not about you stopping to feel something bad about yourself. It's false teaching. It's foolish teaching. It's hopeless teaching. And I despise it. And yet, the majority of the popular preachers in the Reformed camp even preach that foolishness and leave a lot of people without any hope. Hear me. This union and identity with his brethren who are flesh and blood, that is you and I, was so that he would take them out of the spiritual realm of flesh and blood. Because according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The corruption cannot inherit the incorruptible. Flesh and blood is what Adam made all of humanity to be, with the result that none is fit for heaven as long as they remain under these powers. Flesh and blood means under the power of sin. Flesh and blood means under the power of the flesh, under the power of the law, under the power of death and hopelessness. So the son came to deliver. He came to set the captives free, free from the power of sin and its darkness. And to be set free from the power of sin does not mean to stop sinning. Please, people, understand the gospel. The power of sin is in its condemnation. Free from the power of sin and its darkness Free from the law, free from the flesh and death and hopelessness. That's what Christ came to bring for God's people by justifying them from all things. Christ justifies you 
from all things that the law could never, ever justify you. Also, he comes as the son of David because God was preaching many things. The seed of the woman goes through Noah. Of course, coming from Adam and Eve. Yeah? And Noah becomes the new head of humanity after the flood. Adam begins as the new head of humanity, as the first head of humanity. But then everybody was wiped off and Noah and his family were left. And so Noah became the new head of humanity and God preaching the gospel still by Noah. And then it goes through Abraham, Isaac, through Jacob, to Judah, yeah, to David and Bathsheba. <laughs> and David on the throne, and God recapitulates the promise of the Messiah to David. Second Samuel 7, let's go there, I'm going to read Second Samuel 7. From verse 8 to 17. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, I took you from the sheepfold from following the ship. To be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And have made you a great name. Like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body. That means a descendant of David. And I will establish his kingdom. And you can tell that this is not talking of Solomon. Here, verse 13. And this seed, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that is talking of Christ. That is not Solomon. I'll be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of man and with the blows of the sons of men. The son of David, who established the everlasting kingdom, 
committed iniquity through the imputation of the sins of his people. Christ did not sin in himself by himself, but he committed iniquity by reason of the imputation of the sins of his people, and thus was chastened with the rod of man. He was beaten with many stripes and with the blows of the sons of men as he was led to Golgotha to be crucified. God is already talking about the crucifixion of Christ in verse 14. He shall be chastened. I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. That is very much related also to Isaiah 53. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Let's talk about Saul briefly. King Saul represented the law and sin. And he was on the throne. Before David came, Saul was on the throne. Before Christ came, sin and law were on the throne. And they had to be taken away to make way for Christ. Saul sought the death of David. King Saul sought the death of David. Which means of Christ. Because sin and law is what sought to kill and bring death to Christ and his people. And if you go and read your Bible, you learn that King Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer, they died on a mountain. They died on Mount Gilboa fighting against the Philistines. And yet God says to David, whom I removed from before you, I removed King Saul from before you. God removed the ministry of death from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now I'm really itching to do a message on King Saul. Because he has a lot of gospel nuggets. I'm telling you. He was a very handsome guy. King Saul was tall and handsome. And initially, Israel loved him. But God said he was going to be brutal. He's going to be ruthless with them. And that is the testimony of the law. It is handsome. It is tall. It is a tall neck. Looks very good and wonderful. But it is brutal towards God's people. I don't know why people don't say it. And when we say it, they say, oh, you antinomian. No, I'm preaching the gospel. So anyway, when Paul came and said, the Christ is the seed or descendant of David according to the flesh, this is what he is referring to. This son of David came in weakness by way of the human flesh but he was more than flesh. He was, verse 4 of Romans 1, 
he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the Lord Jesus was declared or affirmed or proven to be the son of God by the resurrection because the Holy One could not see corruption, it was impossible for Christ to remain dead. And so the resurrection was a demonstration of extraordinary power because no creature has ability to raise themselves from death to life. You can't do that. In Zimbabwe, they have this brand of flower called self-raising flower. It's called Gloria, the self-raising flower. Yeah? But Christ is more than that kind of self-raising. He is God. The flower is self-raising because of yeast. (laughs) Christ is self-raising because he is God. He has life in himself. So the Lord Jesus claimed that he was the son of God and the Jews did not like the sound of it and they understood him to be saying he was no ordinary son of God because they too could have easily claimed that they were sons of God in some way in the created sense of it. But they understood Jesus to be claiming deity, to be claiming divinity, eternality, equality with God. And this claim they thought was blasphemy. And for that they wanted to stone him to death. And it was also one of the charges that they raised against him as why he should die. He was claiming to be the son of God. And they were not happy with that. They understood what he meant. And so the resurrection proved that he indeed was the son of God, not in a creative sense, but in an eternality way, equality with God himself. Okay? So the deity or person and nature of Christ is no small thing in the matter of true religion. You have to get this right. You have to affirm that Christ is the Son of God in the manner in which he understood himself to be. And this is what the Lord said in Matthew 16. Let's go to Matthew 16, 13 to 17. Matthew records and says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Oh, your mother taught you well, Simon. 
You are so smart. Come here. <laughs> no. Blessed are you, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus, one is blessed who knows who he is because that knowledge of Christ does not happen apart from God's revelation. God has to give it to you. And who he is, is what is captured in the gospel message. Your gospel reveals whether you know Christ or not, whether you know the true Christ. What you believe does not cause salvation, but it reveals if you possess the true Christ, if you possess salvation. Faith is about possession. Faith does not cause, it reveals what you possess. So God has revealed himself through Christ. And that Christ is revealed to us by the same God. But Christ reveals to us that there is more to be known and understood. Christ has revealed that there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit, who are the one God. And this understanding Paul refers to in the opening verses of Romans chapter 1. Paul was very Trinitarian in his gospel treatment or exposition. The Trinity was very basic and foundational to his gospel. He opens and tells us of God's gospel. He tells us of Christ who is the Lord and he tells us of the spirit of holiness, and there he completes his Trinitarian equation. The Son of God raised himself from the dead to show that he was not a victim of circumstances. Jesus did not die because he succumbed to the lashes. God does not die because of being beaten by some piece of wood. God does not die because of nails that he created. This was to show that he is God. To show that he was not powerless to the powers that had overtaken Adam and all who were in Adam. And so Jesus raised himself from the dead because, as he said in John 10, no man could take his life away from him. He put it down of his own accord, of his own will, and he took it up back by his own power. Jesus was not a victim of circumstance or a victim of powerlessness. Yes, he had that weakness because of human flesh. But that weakness was not in the sense that a lot of people think it to be. Okay? So the Son of God is God. He is uncreated. He is the Logos, the Word of God, 
who was from the beginning and is the beginning and yet is uncaused. If you're going to preach this in the synagogue, they'll get offended. If you preach this to the Muslims, they're going to get offended because this is the true Jesus. And this son of God is the center of all of God's revelation. This son of God is your salvation. And is the gospel. And he is the promise. Christ is the promise. And this is he whom God was preaching and promised in the Holy Scriptures. And we will now go to some selected places in the Old Testament scriptures to glean some of this testimony. And this will draw us to the closing of our messages. I thought we would go and show you in what manner God was already preaching this promise concerning the Son. And I read somewhere, some commentary, I believe, and the commentator was saying, but Paul did not tell us exactly what scriptures talk about Jesus. <laughs> and I just loved, as I am right now, it's crazy to me when preachers say that. Because by now, everybody should know that all scriptures testify of Christ. Okay? And we'll draw our teaching to a close by going to the book of beginnings and draw some nuggets about the promise. Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. Moses says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to begin to unfold the story of the Son to tell of the promise. The story begins with the old creation. You have to understand, when I say old creation, that needs to become part of your vocabulary of gospel. It's not an ordinary expression. It's a very, very important expression because it is necessary for your understanding of the difference between Adam and Christ. So the story begins with the old creation. And the old creation, we are told, was without form, was void, and was engulfed in darkness which is the natural state of the old creation, that is the spiritual state of the old creation. And Adam will shortly come to inhabit this old creation as its representative and head of all humanity in him. The fallen. Adam cannot run away from this spiritual reality of being without form, void and under spiritual darkness. 
And that is why he sinned. Sin and darkness belong to the old creation as represented by Adam. This is the spiritual state. This is the natural state of all men and women who remain under the powers of the old creation. They essentially are darkness dwellers in a spiritual sense. Verse 3 and 4 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So God spoke and said, let there be light And the light was good. And God is he who divided the light from the darkness. God is he who makes things to differ. The believer and unbeliever are separated by God. They are separated by the light and the darkness. The believer is in the light and the unbeliever bears the testimony of the darkness. Not by their own doing. God makes the difference. And that light is salvation. That light is Christ. And that is anticipating the new creation in Christ. Of which we are told in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. Paul says, But if Our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded in spiritual darkness, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So the light is the light of the gospel of the glory of the Son. Verse 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your born servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul goes to Genesis chapter 1 and connects that testimony with Christ. God has commanded light to shine out of the darkness of your heart. The darkness that was in the old creation and that light that he commanded is Christ And that to say the creation account was gospel preaching. The creation account was gospel preaching. Now, to the new creation, to the appearance of that light, let's go to John 1, verse 1 to 5. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not overcome it. What do you see? We see that the themes of Genesis 1, verse 1 to 2, are being recapitulated in John 1, verse 1 to 5. What are the themes? God in the beginning. That's Genesis chapter 1. God in the beginning. In the beginning, God. And in John 1, it is Christ in the beginning with God. In Genesis, God begins to create by command. And in John, Jesus, the word, is he who made all things. In Genesis, God spoke. And in John 1, Jesus is the word by which the command of creation was given. In Genesis, God commands the light to shine out of darkness. In John, Christ is the life, and his life was the light of men. Men who are under the powers of darkness, without form and void because of sin. Naturally, that's who you are. You are without form, and you are empty. And that darkness was dispelled by the light that God commanded And in John, Christ is the light that has come and shines in the darkness of the world and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overcome it as to subdue, as to extinguish the light. And that to say, Christ Jesus is the God of the old creation who has come to establish the new creation, a spiritual creation, by his own blood. That's what is happening. So those are the two events of creation. The old creation that is now being reformed spiritually by the appearance of Christ. In Genesis 1, God is already preaching about the promise to say the real light is coming. Let's go to Genesis 1 again, verse 16, and we'll end there. Genesis 1, verse 16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God made two great lights. The greater light, the sun to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. The greater light is the sun. It is Christ, the sun of righteousness. According to Malachi 2, verse 2, verse, sorry, Malachi 4, verse 2. Malachi 4 verse 2 says, But to you who fear my name, 
the son of righteousness, S-U-N, shall arise with healing in his wings, shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like store-fed cows. The son of righteousness brings healing. When it shall arise in the morning, which is looking to the resurrection of the Son of God. When he arose in the morning, the Son of Righteousness to bring healing with him. By his stripes we have been healed. When it has been very cold like we having now in this winter, very cold and it's dark and dreary, people tend to get all kinds of sickness. But when the sun comes out in its power, it brings healing. And that is Christ's preaching. Christ is the greater light that shines in the darkness to rule the day. The sun in our solar system preaches the gospel. But what is the lesser light? It is the moon. Why does the moon rule the night and not the day? Because the moon does not have light intrinsic to its nature. The moon has no light of its own. Naturally, the moon is a dark place. It only reflects the light of the sun. The moon, understand me, someone. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. There's no light that comes from the moon itself. And that saying what? That bearing testimony of the promise. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The moon carries the testimony of the law, as the shadow of the substance. You cannot grow vegetables with the light that comes from the moon. You can't plant flowers and stuff with the light that comes from the moon. They will all die. Guaranteed, they will all die. But if you plant your field, your flowers with the light that comes from the sun, they will live. <laughs> and that is say, The law reflects. It speaks. It testifies of the Son, of Christ, but only as a shadow. But it cannot give those promises because the promise, according to Paul, is not of law. The promise of salvation is not of law, but of promise. The inheritance is not of law. God gave it to Abraham even by promise. So when you look at the relationship between the sun and the moon, 
in our solar system, you are supposed to understand gospel. When you see the moon at night, it's telling you of the testimony of the sun. But the light that it has is not of its own. It is telling you that if you sleep a little longer, the sun is coming. Yeah? So the law only allows you, like Moses, to see the promise from a distance, but never allows you to enter the promised land. The moon, as I said, is naturally a dark place and has light only because of what it reflects from the surface of the moon, of the sun. And when the moon and the sun shine together, which has more glory, <laughs> it is the sun. Because Christ has greater glory than that of the law. And when the sun is shining, you always see that the moon is receding, is being overshadowed, because the glory of the moon as of the glory of the, of the law fades, but not that of the sun. And this is what God was preaching. And so those who hold to both the glory of the moon and the sun to continue together do not get it. The sun, even the Lord Jesus, rules the day. He rules with his light. The moon, the law, is for those who are walking in darkness, in the darkness of the night of the old creation. That is what you use the light of the moon for, for walking in darkness. When I was growing up with my grandparents in the rural areas in Zimbabwe, my grandfather would wake me up 12 midnight, 1 a.m. to go and work in the fields only if the moon was shining. <laughs> the moon, the light of the moon is for those who are working in darkness. That's what you use the moon for. That's what you use the moon for. The children of light walk in the day. They do not walk using the moon for guidance. Those who understand the gospel do not walk before God by the law, but by Christ alone. What am I saying? <laughs> I'm saying this is God's gospel that he promised in the Holy Scriptures, even in his creation. And we shall expound a lot of gospel nuggets as we unfold the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans. And that means we shall be going to a lot of places in the Bible to seek this testimony of Christ. Also, whilst we are here, I highly recommend that you look or tune in when we have the Old Testament messages. We have a, a ton of Old Testament messages. They bear testimony of this very thing that Paul is talking about. Okay? So we have a lot of gospel testimony from the Old Testament of which I thought to just bring this in the closing of this message to give you a foretaste of what is to come. The matters 
of your salvation, all the doctrines that respect your salvation are all found in the Old Testament. They are all Old Testament doctrines. The New Testament did not bring a new doctrine of salvation. Okay? So we shall unfold all that. Praise God. We are done. Amen. According to the scriptures. <laughs> that he promised. Alright, let's pray and thank God for what he has given us to hear. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again for the many words that have been spoken concerning your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the understanding that he is the Son with power who was confirmed to be so by the resurrection from the dead. And him being of the descendant or line of David as testimony of the scriptures as you spoke to your prophets and your people of old, even David, promising that he shall always have a son on his kingdom, on his throne, and this throne will be forever and ever. We thank you for all those who have gathered to hear this message. We pray that you cause them to come back and hear some more and even to go and re-listen to these messages for many things were shared. We honor you, we glorify you, be with us in all things. Keep us in our going in and out. We honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>